what I've been asked to, to, to do is share a devotion of God's Word and also share my testimony with you. Um, and so uh, as we kind of look at God's Word today, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2. If you guys are interested to follow along, we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And the reason why is because this is kind of one of my, for lack of a better term, my, my life verses. I, I really don't like those kind of Christianese phrases like that, but, but to be truthful, this is one of those things for me that, that is, is, it is my, uh, one of the sections of scripture that really speaks to my life. And so I'd like to read it with you and then kind of dig into a little bit of what we're talking about. And I feel terrible for you guys. You have to hear me ramble on for an hour about this stuff, but it's all right. Hopefully to God be the glory. Let's read together in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm looking at verses 1 through 10, and I'll be reading it in the English Standard Version. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So why is this one of my life verses? Well, I'll get to that in just a second, but I want to talk to you a little bit about kind of testimonies. You see, before I became a Christian, testimonies, they seemed incredibly strange to me. I don't know if this was a a similar thing for any of you, but testimony seemed like this really weird thing before I became a Christian. And anytime I heard somebody give a testimony, give their testimony, it really seemed like more of an opportunity for them to kind of like pat themselves on the back and like beg other like-minded people to pat them on the back. I don't know if you guys ever felt that way, but I certainly did. And they would do this, kind of this patting and this begging, all with this kind of Christianese style of language that certainly made it seem like they were humble. I, I remember thinking that pretty clearly, like, man, now this wasn't a term then, but as I think about it now, it's, it's almost like some of these testimonies are like a humble brag, right? They're a humble brag. I don't remember distinctly my freshman year of high school. I was I was sitting at a youth group, and in the town that I grew up in, it's a town called Yucaipa. I've been surprised to hear that some of you actually know where that is, uh, because it's in Southern California. And if if you start in LA and you drive like 90 miles east and you blink, you've passed Yucaipa on your way to Palm Springs, uh, and that's kind of where I grew up. And there wasn't much to do in this place where I grew up. You could either uh, 
You could either have white friends and girlfriends and do things that you shouldn't be doing, or you could smoke weed, or you could go to youth group, or all three. Um, and that's kind of what there was to do in the town that I grew up in. There were more churches than there were almost any other establishment. As a matter of fact, it's still called affectionately or not so affectionately in some places. Uh, in California, it's called like the, the Bible Belt of California. There's more churches per capita in my hometown than there are any other place in the Western region. Uh, and it's a very small town. Uh, and there are just tons and tons and tons and tons of churches. And so that's kind of what you did when you were uh, a high schooler. You would go off and, and, and uh, I don't know, go four by with your friends or, or do other things uh, that were some that were good and most that were not. Or you, you would go to church. And so I remember sitting distinctly in uh, a youth group uh, that I went to because the girl that I was interested in dating told me that she would only go out with me if I went to youth group with her. Okay, go to youth group. That sounds perfect. And so I, I went to youth group, and I remember hearing these testimonies of people, and I distinctly remember thinking, um, if this testimony thing is supposed to be about this God that you all are claiming to love so much, and if this testimony thing is supposed to be about what he has done for and in you, why are these people all talking about themselves so much? It was a really weird thing to me. And after I became a Christian many years later, and I began to understand the biblical significance and the merit of testimonies, after I kind of began to understand and study biblical examples that were given uh, of people, namely the Apostle Paul in his testimony as he gives it a couple times through the Gospel, as I began to understand this biblical outlook on testimonies and why they're given, my opinion of testimonies largely stayed the same. It largely stayed the same. See, nearly every testimony that I had heard until that point was, you know, I just couldn't live this way any longer. I had to stop hurting the people that I love. I had to realize that I'm worth all the unicorn magic and fairy dust that the universe has to offer. I had to do this. I had to do that. Me, 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 me. This was kind of the refrain of so many testimonies that I heard. And I usually heard next to nothing about this God that these people purported to love, this transforming Christ that these people said they sat under and were saved by. Unfortunately, the mention of Christ and his surpassing goodness and his mercy and his love and his sacrifice, if they were uttered at all, they were just kind of comments that seemed to me, even after becoming a Christian, that were just kind of speckled in to people's testimonies, so that way the other people that were in the room that knew the language would know, okay, at least we're sort of talking about God things. And that's kind of what it seemed like. And then I, I started noticing even on top of that, that far worse is that amongst a lot of kind of Christian cultures, there, there started to be this kind of one-upmanship that started happening in testimonies. And if I, if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, then I'm just kind of sharing a little bit of backstory with you guys. But I, maybe some of you have resonated with this before. There started to be kind of this one-upmanship that I would notice with testimonies. It was almost as if people, when they share their testimonies, whoever was previously before Christ, the biggest, most nasty, most degenerate sinner, well, they were kind of now the most holy. And their testimony carried a little more merit a little more weight. 
it was almost like among many Christian cultures, it was this grotesque badge of honor. I started to notice that our, our, our previous manner of sinfulness was this nasty kind of badge we wore on our sleeves and we showed it off a little bit. And that bothered me. I even have one friend, he's still a friend of mine, uh, that we worked in ministry together when I first started working in ministry about, uh, about 12 years ago. Uh, and he, he uh, had grown up in the church. He had grown up in the church his whole life. We used to joke that we knew the pew he was born in. Uh, and, and because he, he grew up in the same church that I served uh, his whole life. And he was baptized in that church. His family had always been members of that church. And he never recalls a time in his entire life that he didn't believe. He never recalls a time in his entire life that the gospel wasn't true to him. The beauty of Christ and his sacrifice wasn't real to him. That God in his sovereignty and grace wasn't just an accepted fact. And I remember having a conversation with him one time, and he was kind of telling me that, and I thought, what a gift of grace. The idea that not once in his entire life can he recall a time that he didn't believe with absolute confidence in the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How beautiful. But he didn't really feel that way at that time. He actually told me once, he said, sometimes I wish, and I'll never forget, this is a direct quote. He said, sometimes... I wish my testimony was more engaging than that, referring to, referring to the idea that he just always believed. He said, I, I, sometimes I wish that my testimony was more engaging than that. He said, the story of my salvation doesn't resonate with people. I was heartbroken. Now, thankfully, thankfully, he has since grown from kind of such a heartbreaking understanding. Uh, he's, he's now uh, seeking uh, staff positions in other places, but it bugged me. It bugged me that, that this cultural Christianity had turned testimonies into this ugly thing. And as a result, I think that I kind of had an unhealthy response to testimonies. See, for me, for a long time, I rarely gave my testimony outside of evangelistic efforts. Outside of evangelistic efforts, I rarely gave my testimony, if ever, now, if I was out engaging the lost, I viewed my testimony as, as a tool by which I could use to segue into presenting somebody with the gospel. But if Christians, brothers and sisters, whom I loved, would ask me about my testimony, I'd give them like a snippet and I'd subtly kind of change the topic. As a matter of fact, this is a habit that's hard to break. I still do this oftentimes. And, and, and that's been recently kind of... Uh, brought to my recollection, as many of you have said, oh, I've heard parts of your story, but I'm excited today to hear your whole testimony. Oh, I remember you told me this, but I haven't heard your whole testimony. I realize it's, it's still a habit that I have, this idea that I just kind of change the subject. But it wasn't until I started interviewing for full-time positions uh, at churches and in ministry that I began to understand the significance of sharing the story of what God has done in my life with other believers. And I, and I think that it's multifold. And so I want to start with this. As we consider this section of scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I want to start with this. My testimony in Christ as a believer is this. At one time in my life, I was a rebellious, 
a rebel against God. I was deceived in my heart, hardened in my heart, stiff in my neck, blind and deaf in my understanding. I was a rebel against the sovereign God of the universe, entirely deserving of nothing but wrath and destruction. There was not a redeemable thing about me, no matter how much I lied to myself and thought that there could be. And my testimony is that God, in his mercy and grace, for reasons absolutely unknown to me, called me out of that ignorance, called me out of that blindness, softened my heart and loosened my neck, and in his mercy and goodness, by his grace, granted me the gift of faith that I might believe in him. If you hear nothing else today, that is my testimony. That I was a sinner in rebellion against God, deserving of wrath eternally in hell. And today, by God's grace and no work of my own, I am saved through Christ Jesus. That's my testimony. Now, my story is a little bit longer than that. And I think that's kind of what our testimonies uh, are for believers when we're sharing them with one another. It's the story of where I was and who I was and by God's grace, who I am now. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 remind me entirely who I was and who I am now. As we look at it, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Friends, that was me in every way, shape, or form. I was dead in my trespasses and I was quite content. I had no knowledge of the fact that I was dead in my trespasses and I cheerfully walked that way. I cheerfully and joyfully walked following the course of this world. Things that were worldly, things that I thought had value and merit, I pursued those things. I shared with you a little bit about my hometown and what that looked like growing up and how you just went to church because there was nothing else to do. And really, I was there, as a lot of people were, for other reasons, social reasons. There was no other place to hang out. So you went to youth group every night of the week at a different church. Sometimes you can go every night of the week for a month and never hit the same church. And you would do that just to spend time with your friends. Or for me, more realistically, to spend time with girls. Because that's what I was interested in. Girls. And where did the girls go? Church. So where was I going? Church. <laughs> and what were the girls saying? Oh, all this Christianese stuff. So I became fluent. <laughs> because that's what the girls were doing. I had this worldly way of thinking, and unfortunately it didn't change after high school. I can't just chalk it up to being a dumb kid, right? Because I kind of continued in that worldly manner of thinking into college and into career. I had a very worldly way of thinking, and I was cheerfully following the course of the world, following, I have come sense to find out, the prince of the power of the air. See, that's the deceit of the world. I think that even if non-believers understood that they were following in nothing of merit, in only deceit, if they were following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, I even think that unbelievers who would never otherwise be regenerate, who are not elect, I still think that they would try and do something different for the most part. Nobody, for the most part, intentionally wants to walk in deceit, at least not at first. But this is where I was. And that spirit that was at work in the sons of disobedience, I was a son of disobedience, both 
spiritually speaking and literally speaking. I have a great relationship with my parents. And for the most part, if you were to ask them, I think they would say that I was an okay kid. But that's because even still at 34, nearly 35 years of age, they still haven't found out all the things I was doing. Thank God, because my poor mother, my poor father, the terror that they would know. I was a son of disobedience in many, many ways. And I lived certainly among and with and for the passions of my flesh. And I carried out the desires of the body and the mind. I pursued things that I thought would bring me joy. I pursued things that I thought would bring me pleasure. And that framed my entire existence. And as a result, I was by nature, by nature born, a child of wrath, deserving of that wrath. See, this section of scripture is so perfect for me. I continually recall it. My story goes much like that for a long time. I pursued things that I didn't realize at the time were sinful and lust-ridden and selfish desires of the flesh. And, uh, and I, began, I began going to school. I originally went to school for uh, on a vocal music scholarship fresh out of high school. As a matter of fact, uh, I graduated high school uh, about three months into my senior year. I, I uh, had a lot of credits, and uh, even though I never particularly tried very hard at school, I was always good at school. Uh, school was never something that was a big difficulty for me, especially here in California, where the idea was essentially um, learn how to take a test, and I tested well. Uh, and so I graduated very early, uh, just three months into my senior year, and I was given uh, a full-ride vocal scholarship to Cal State San Bernardino, uh, and I was also offered one uh, at Cal State LA. And I kind of checked out both of those schools and I settled on going to Cal State San Bernardino, and I was quite certain that I was going uh, to go and get the, the formal uh, vocal education and I was certainly gonna be a rock star. That's definitely what I had planned in my life. And I didn't know if I was gonna be a rock star on stage or a rock star in the studio, but I was gonna make money doing music Period. And then, at 17 years of age, just a couple of months uh, into starting college, I was diagnosed with cancer. I was diagnosed with a form of brain cancer called glioblastoma. It's a traumatic brain cancer, uh, and it was uh, shocking to find it in me because typically speaking, it's something that really only crops up in geriatric patients, people that are a little bit older. Uh, it's not typically common in younger people. And I, I had this brain cancer. Uh, and when I was originally diagnosed, I was told I had about 18 months to live. And so uh, at 17 years old, that's what I was faced with. I wasn't going to be a rock star. I wasn't even going to finish my second year of college. I might not even finish my first, depending on how sick I got. And I was going to die in 18 months. And so that worldliness and that worldly living that we had talked about before, I kicked that up to 11. I thought, well, if I've only got 18 months, these are going to be the best 18 months ever. 
And all those things that I told myself that I wasn't going to do, like for example, even though I was very worldly and I very much enjoyed uh, the company of ladies, I at that point uh, had not yet engaged in extramarital activities. I decided at some point in my life that I wanted to wait until I was married, and, and so that's what I had been doing. And then when I was told that I had 18 months to live, I said, well, there goes that. I don't have time to find a wife, so let's just find a girl. <laughs> let's do that instead. Or well, better than one, let's find as many as I can. Let's do that. And drinking and partying and other things came. Uh, and I had a, a dear friend of mine who had known me in high school. Uh, she's actually still a dear friend of mine. And her mother and she had both struggled with uh, some breast cancer stuff. Even as, as a juvenile, she suffered with some uh, breast cancer stuff that ran in her family. And when they found out that I had uh, cancer and that I was just kind of on self-destruct mode, they came to me. I was living by myself at 17, had my first place. And uh, they came to visit me. They said, hey, my, she said, hey, my mom and I, we want to take you out to lunch. And it was my day off, and I loved her, and I loved her mother. And I said, sure, let's go. Uh, I also loved food, if you can't tell. I still do. And, uh, and so I said, yeah, I don't mind a free lunch. And so we went out to lunch. Uh, and, uh, and if I'm being entirely honest, I don't remember tons of the conversation because I was still inebriated partially from the night before. But what I do remember is, is her saying, uh, just, you know how much we love you, Justin, and I know how much you love me. Will you do me the favor? Come with me. We made a doctor's appointment for you. We just want you to talk to this doctor. We just want you to talk to this doctor. Will you please do it just because, just because you love us? And, and I'll tell you, friends, right now, something that you'll learn about me in the coming years is I'm a softie for girls. Uh, you know, I was a hound for, for the ladies, but for those girls, that, that are a part of my life, whom I love, I'm a teddy bear, I'm a softie, I have a hard time saying no. And my friend, uh, her name was Heather, and she doesn't mind me uh, talking about her, I already mentioned that I was gonna mention her today, she said, I live 500 miles away, okay. Uh, so, so uh, my friend Heather um, was never a romantic interest of mine, but she was a dear, dear friend, and her mother was a dear, dear lady, and they, they just loved me, just, just cause, even though I was kind of an arrogant guy. And so when they asked me, please, would you do this for us? I said, okay. <laughs> and I went. I went to this doctor's appointment. And I'm going to kind of abbreviate a bunch of really long things. Uh, but I went to this doctor's appointment, uh, and I, I started meeting these doctors at a place called the City of Hope. And it's in the city of Dewarty, and they're generally speaking a pediatric cancer research institution. That's what they do. And they're, they're uh, uh, located in Southern California. And so we went. Uh, Heather had gone there when she was dealing with some breast cancer stuff. And so they got me in and I sat down with this doctor and they went over my tests and go into the tube and hear the loud noises and pictures of your brain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I sat down with the doctor and, and I remember this conversation very clearly. And I said, okay, doctor, how long do I have left to live? And he looked straight at me and he looked down at the file and he looked straight at me again. And he said, young man, I don't see anything in here that says that you have an expiration date. And for the first time that I can recall in my entire life, I felt hope. For the first time in my entire life, I felt hope. You see, I, I had kind of a rough upbringing. My biological dad, who since has become saved and we're working on reconciliation in, in, in our relationship, my, but my biological dad was not what you would generally refer to as a kind man. He was certainly not a gentleman. He certainly was not pleased that he was my father, and he delighted in making me aware of that fact as often 
and as abruptly as he could. That's why I had kind of this rough upbringing, and, and, and I didn't know very much hope growing up. And I, and I had started to know this sliver of hope when my mom remarried the man who I call dad, the man who I call father. Hopefully you'll get to meet him in a few weeks. His name is Gordon Campbell. He's an amazing man, a Christian, uh, who helped expose me to the gospel, but I still didn't get it. I was kind of hopeful in that, but even though he never treated me as such, I still always felt like the stepkid, right? The, the, the son that he had to have as opposed to the ones he got to have. And so I still had this weird kind of father hurt in my heart. And so this moment when this doctor told me, you don't have an expiration date. Young man, I don't see anything in here that indicates that you have an expiration date. I felt hope. And friends, let me just pause you there because even that hope, that immense hope that I knew in that moment was nothing compared to the hope that I would later know in Christ Jesus in a few years. That hope of knowing you might not die. When that doctor started unfolding to me this idea that they had this research program that at the time was called X-Knife Program or X-Knife Technology, this idea that there was this type of radiation specifically designed for tumors like mine that were deep in the brain and otherwise inoperable. I had this hope and this excitement, and that pales in comparison to the moment that I realized that I was saved by grace in Christ Jesus. That moment that I realized that even though I was dead in my trespasses, that I was made alive in Christ Jesus, like it tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And so, uh, moving forward in the story, because I don't like talking about myself tons. <laughs> moving forward in the story, I went through several years of radiation treatment. As a result, I ended up getting, uh, uh, it very quickly, not after years, but very quickly in that process, uh, because of secondary radiation and the effects on the body, I ended up getting some cancer in my larynx. Uh, if you don't know, that's where your voice is kept. Let's just make it simple for the biology of it. That's where all the things that make your voice are kept. And I ended up getting some cancer in there, and I had to have some surgeries that removed that, that, that irreparably damaged my voice. And my, my thought of, of ever being a professional musician faded. At that point, it was, you'll be lucky if you ever are able to sing at all. You'll be lucky if you can speak. Uh, if you guys notice, I always have a lot of water with me. I get really, really dry in here. Some of the glands that help moisten that area, they have to remove those. And so I end up drinking a lot of water when I speak or when I sing or when I do all these types of things. Uh, so that went away. All my worldly plans started fading away. And during this treatment that I was dealing with with cancer for several years, I started a treatment just before I was 18 years old, and I stopped the treatment right before I turned 23 years old. Uh, and so several years of cancer treatment, I saw some things that were really hard. That I would, I would love to say that this was the time in my life that drew me to Christ. But I, I, that wouldn't be true. As a matter of fact, during this time of my life, I became really angry at God. I, I repeatedly told myself, if there's a God, man, do I want to give him one? And, and Lord, I'm sorry for ever having that attitude. And, 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 and I don't want you to think it was because of me. I didn't pity myself at all. I wasn't feeling sorry for me, and so I was angry at God. I didn't feel like I was owed anything. I had kind of been used to getting kicked. 
I was all right with it. It was just another day. What, what really started to frustrate me, and, and at that point in my life, make me angry at this God that I didn't know, and that if you asked me, I would deny existed, was that because I had started in uh, this cancer research facility in pediatric medicine, that's where they'll keep you, is pediatric medicine, even though you're no longer a child. So at 18 and 19 and 20 and 21, I spent a lot of time in children's cancer wards, uh, whether it be at City of Holton Duarte or Chalk in the city of Anaheim or Loma Linda or whatever facility was housing us at that time. I spent a lot of time in pediatric cancer wards. And if you spend any time in any cancer ward, people die. That's what happens. I spent a lot of time with dying children. And that made me angry. And what made me more angry is for about uh, two months, it was actually the longest stay that I ever actually had to stay in uh, a cancer ward. Most of the time, uh, if you guys have never dealt with this, which I pray that you haven't, if you've never dealt with this, most of the time you don't go like stay in the hospital period when you're on cancer until you're well and they release you. That's not typically the way it works. You'll go in for, for a period of time and then you'll go home and then you'll go in for a period of time and then you'll go home. But for me, for this particular round, I spent about two months almost exclusively in the hospital because I was dealing with secondary infections from where they were putting in uh, chemo lines. I still have scars from them. Chemo is a terrible thing. I hope none of you ever have, ever have to go through it. Um, but I was dealing with a lot of secondary infections. My system was, was not doing well, and so they kept me uh, in the hospital because I kept having to come back anyway. And while I was there, I was roommates with a little boy named Joshua, Joshua Jacob. And uh, Joshua Jacob's family were believers. And they would come and they'd spend time with Joshua Jacob every day. There was almost never a time where either his mother or his brother or his older sister, who was uh, 17, 18 at the time, there was almost never a time that they weren't there. And these people were constantly praying for Joshua Jacob. And I spent a lot of time with Joshua. And then this other thing started to happen. These people who I didn't know were constantly praying for me. And I didn't really want it, but I, but I did like Joshua. And his mom always brought me cookies. And I certainly liked that. As a matter of fact, she brought me the, uh, some of the best fudge brownies I've ever had in my life. If you know me, I'm not a big chocolate fan. I know I'm gasping, I'll find it over and I'm still safe. Uh, not a big chocolate fan. Not a big chocolate fan, but these fudge brownies, wow, ambrosia. And she would bring them for me, and I loved them. Uh, and I loved also that they were soft on my tummy. I could keep them down, and so they were extra good. And these people would pray for me all the time. And I would love to say that it's because of them that I heard the gospel and repented and believed. But life isn't always that tidy, friends, and Joshua Jacob went to be with the Lord. And I say that now. Sorry. Fully confident that Joshua Jacob was the Lord. But I can tell you, my tears aren't just sadness over having to witness that. It was hard. My tears are, are shameful. Because the day that Joshua Jacob took his last breath, I was so mad at this God who his family had so diligently prayed.
prayed to. They believed with every fiber of their being that their boy was going to be delivered from this terrible sickness. They believed it in the depths of their soul. And when it didn't happen, when he drew his last breath and they were in the room, this God that these people believed in had the audacity to accept their praise because that's precisely what they did. They say out to this God that I was so angry at. They sang him praises around the body of their son. I didn't know how to process this. And I was mad. I was sick to my stomach. I had to leave the room. And I threw up all over the floor in front of a really cute nurse. It was embarrassing. <laughs> and, and I was so angry at God because I just didn't understand if he was real, if he was good, if he was loving. Why not Joshua? Why not me? I don't care. I didn't care about you, God, and I didn't care about anybody else. Why not? Why not me? I'm so angry. And I'm so thankful that God has availed me of my arrogance and can forgive me for the anger that I felt because, friends, it was very much one of those curse God and die moments for me, the only real one of my life. It was a curse God and die moment for me. And so that was not the point at which I believed. And I was healed of cancer and I moved on with my life, angry at this God, unwilling to hear about the gospel. The only person that I would listen to when he tried to share anything with me about the Bible or faith or the gospel was my dad, Gordon Campbell, because I loved and respected my dad so much. Because by that time I had come to understand that I wasn't just the son that he had to have because he wanted to marry my mom. I understood that this man truly truly took me as his son and I loved him dearly. And so my dad was the only person anybody else didn't have time for it. I wasn't disrespectful about it, but I wasn't sitting around and listening to whatever it was you were selling because your God was mean and killed Joshua and Jacob. So I had no time for it. Went on to college, started dating a girl, uh, became engaged to her. We lived together for a great number of years and during this time, I began going to medical school. See, one of the things that this cancer experience had given me, this time with all these children, was this deep desire to help people. If I could do anything, if I could redeem any part of this useless life that I had, that I wanted to do that, helping people, so people like Joshua Jacob's parents might not have to see their child die. And so I went into medicine. And I quickly realized that being a doctor was crazy expensive. And so I decided for the next best thing in my estimation, which was to uh, be a physician's assistant. That's what I wanted to do. And so that's what I went to school for. And it was towards the end of that education that I really started to struggle with a couple of things. See, something that I haven't told you about yet, and many of you know about this, is I'm kind of a guy that likes to get my hands in and fix things. I understand how things work. When something's broken, I just, I just kind of have this, this knowledge of, of why it's broken, and then I set about figuring out how to fix it. Machines and systems, they just make sense to me. 
It's been something that's always been very cathartic for me. So that's why you guys will notice as the years go on. I like anything that goes fast and makes a lot of noise uh, that, that I can tinker with and work on. I, I, I ride a motorcycle. I have a 67 Mustang. I'm always working on everybody's cars. There are people here in this room today that were members of the former Creekside Community Church that just knew, hey, if, if, if the car's broken, take it to pastor and make it work again. <laughs> I, I, I like that kind of stuff. And the human body is this amazing machine. If you don't know much about anatomy and physiology, that's okay. I'm not going to bore you with an anatomy lesson today. But the human body is an amazing and miraculous machine. It is so finely tuned. It's so symmetrical in how it works and baffling in other ways. It's fascinating. And it was at the later stages of this education, as I had finished the majority of the scholastic education and I was doing internship hours and I was actually working at Riverside Regional Medical Center in the emergency room as a physician's assistant intern, that, that a couple of things just started to really bother me. See, I had gone through this de de degree program that basically, uh, very unapologetically, tells you repeatedly that the idea of a theistic worldview is nonsense. It's a scientific worldview. Uh, that is the only avenue of merit. And, and I always kind of viewed that ideology as a religion in, of it, in and of itself, and so I just kind of distanced myself from it. Religion was not something I wanted to mess with. Whether it was theistic religion or whether it was atheistic religion, I didn't have time for what you were selling. Just teach me how to fix people so I can do that. That's what I was there for. But, but I started to realize that this human mechanism, it, it made no sense if, if what they were pushing was true. It made no sense if what they were pushing was true. Every machine that I had ever worked on had a designer, had a mechanic and an engineer, had a creator. And it started to click for me that one of the reasons I was good at medicine is because I had that mindset of the human body being a mechanism that needed repair. It was a machine that needed repair. And if there was a machine, there had to be an engineer. There had to be a creator. There is no machine ever in existence that just showed up. And so it challenged a lot of what I was thinking. It challenged a lot of what I believed, and all of a sudden I started to realize there has to be something. There has to be a creator. I don't know if he's a creator that cares. I don't know if he's a creator uh, that, that is involved. I don't know if he just kind of dropped this spinning ball into motion and then bounced to do something else. I have no idea, but I gotta figure that out. And if I'm being absolutely honest, when I made the determination to seek out the truth, to seek out the Creator, I was hoping beyond hope that it was anything but the God of the Bible. I was hoping beyond hope that it was anything beyond, anything beside, anything other than the Christian God of the Bible, because I had spent so many years at that point a vocal opponent to this mean God that it was going to really suck if I had to swallow some of that down and eat a big old crow. And so I started studying all these religions. But what I did is when I set out on this journey is I told myself that I am going to dedicate myself to uh, intellectual integrity. So as I study these things and as I seek out these things, I'm going to try and walk into every situation with no bias, which is not possible, by the way, but I tried. 
<laughs> and I'm going to try and walk into any, every one of these situations with an open mind, which is not possible, by the way, but I try. <laughs> and the first time that I find something that's intellectually inconsistent, you fail. I'm moving on to the next one. So I avoided Judaism and Christianity, because let's not swallow that pill. And instead, started looking at all these different philosophies and all these different faiths. Anything that centered around the notion of an intelligent designer, I was interested in learning in. And I can tell you, friends, even though I am not an evidentiary apologist, I am absolutely a presuppositionalist, at that time in my life, evidentiary apologetics is all I had. I didn't even know that that was a word or a phrase, by the way, but that's all I knew. And so I started down this path, and I realized really quickly, if you study things with intellectual integrity, if you set aside emotion, there are big flaws in all of these different things. Now through that, I had come up with some pretty, what I thought were groovy kind of philosophies as I was moving along. And I remember one time speaking with my dad. I was speaking with my dad, and he was asking me about this. He was well aware of my quest to find truth. And, uh, and he was just kind of asking me how it went and how it goes. I said, Dad, it's, I'm learning some cool stuff, and I, I thought I had some really cool concepts about what love was, and this idea of like love kind of binding all the ethos together. It's very hippie and new age. <laughs> But the, 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 the concept of a creator still escaped me. Dad, something has to have escaped this, or created this, rather, and, and it's, it's just, I, I can't figure it out. And he said, you're not looking. And so he pushed me, encouraged me towards the God of the Bible. But Christianity was still something I was like, mm -hmm. so let's check out Judaism. Maybe they got something. And boy, did they. Oh man, they started firing on a lot of cylinders, and there was this consistency, particularly through the first four or five books of the Bible. Whew, I'm not running into these intellectual problems. Uh-oh. <laughs> Maybe this God of the Bible is a thing. Until we get to the question mark of the Messiah. Ah, that's where Judaism has had its failing. You're out. There it goes. I, I stole that from Pastor Cliff. <laughs> that's, that's where you go, Judaism. And so I'm talking with my dad about it again. And my dad lays out the gospel for me. He said, all this stuff that you learned about Judaism, all these things that you're learning, let me tell you about the completion. And for the first time ever, this Jesus thing actually started making sense to me. For the first time ever, the New Testament Wow, started to click. Now I still don't believe that was the moment that I was saved, but that was certainly the moment that I was intrigued. That was certainly the moment that I started, stopped rather, using all the kind of worldly, uh, Christianity, the Bible contradicts itself all over the place. Well, actually it really doesn't, as I study it with intellectual integrity. Uh, and Christians are, are hypocrites. Oh, it says they're supposed to be. <laughs> That's a problem. And so, this is, this is where it started to click for me. I told you a little while ago about this gal that I was living with. 
We uh, were engaged and living together for five years. And I had kept feeling this, this urging. She was a Catholic gal, and we spent, you know, that meant that we spent all of our holidays and, and, and the smudge of the dirt on your face day at church and every, everything else was no matter. There was a little candle here and a little statue there in our house, and as long as I didn't like mess with them, everything's fine. Uh, but that didn't make sense to me either. The priest at, at her church didn't have consistent answers for me, and then encouraged that we started going to the Spanish-speaking Mass. <laughs> when I started asking too many questions, that was fun. <laughs> and so we, we, we lived together in this way, and, and I was not yet a Christian. And uh, much to my joy, she became pregnant. Oh, man. Friends, I can tell you, since I was a little boy, I wanted to be a daddy. I wanted to be a daddy since I was little. And one of the terrible things about being told at 17 years old that you only got 18 months to live is the startling and terrifying realization that I'll never be a daddy. For me. It was heartbreaking for me. And so now here I am, years past that, still going through cancer treatments, but looking better all the time. I meant medically looking better. I just about always look. This is what you get. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, uh, she got pregnant, and I about came out of my skin with joy. I'm going to be a daddy. I'm going to be a daddy. And if I'm going to be a daddy, man, I better get this, this, this creator thing figured out. And I was starting to feel like, okay, this, this God of the Bible, maybe that's the way to go. So fast forward a couple of months, we announced it to my family. We just find out that we're about to have a daughter. And my girlfriend starts not feeling so well. And then she starts having some spotting. And so we rush her to the hospital where I work. And long story short, she lost the baby. She lost the baby. And there, she had a need. She, she needed me to go. There was blood, and I don't want to get into it, but she needed me to go home and get her some clothes. And so I was walking out. On uh, December 10th, I was walking out of 2006 of the, uh, I'm sorry, 2005, uh, of the hospital, and um, I was just heartbroken and, and wounded. And I had this realization as I was walking towards my pickup truck to go get my girlfriend's clothes. I did this. See, for just a moment, that old kind of way of thinking cropped up again, and I was mad at God for just an instant. It was Joshua Jacob all over again. What did my daughter ever do? Why not me? Thankfully, by God's grace and his mercy, that went away. And from the door to my truck where I was parked in pretty close proximity. My heart on that matter changed, and by the time I reached my truck, I did this. God, you didn't do this. I did this. It was my sin that brought this girl into existence. It was my sin that made me a, re a rebel against you. It was my sin. It was my doing 
forgive me. That's the moment that I was saved. At least I believe. Because in that moment, in that parking lot, I literally, not metaphorically, hit my knees and I said, whatever you want, God. Whatever you want. Whatever it is. Whatever it is, I'm sorry. And I'm, I, that's it. I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fight against you anymore. I'm not gonna rail against you anymore. I'm not gonna doubt you anymore. The Bible is true. You are God. What's next? And fast forward through several more years of hardship and, and, and difficulty. And here I am today. But that day, that day has never left. That commitment that I made to the Lord in that evening, through my tears and my anguish and my hurt has never changed. God, whatever. Whatever you want, whatever you say, whatever you teach, your Bible is true. Your love for me is boundless. Your grace for me is absolutely unmerited, but it is much appreciated. Lord, I adore you, whatever it is, wherever I must go, however I must serve. Lord, let it be for you. And that's where I have been ever since. It was the very following year that I began, about eight months after that, I began serving on staff in the church. Uh, I went to my girlfriend at the time, uh, which was, uh, as I look retrospectively, not a very tender or, or, or very uh, kind way to go about doing things. I wouldn't advise this now as a, as a biblical counselor, but uh, about uh, four days after that happened after we lost our daughter, as we're still tender, as she's still physically dealing with, with all of those things, I said, I'm a Christian and I want you to be too. And she said, no. And I said, great, I'm moving out. <laughs> that, was, that was it. I was a jerk, I'm sorry. <laughs> and so I've been pursuing uh, Christ with my life and my service, my service rather, ever since. Uh, I started working on staff in a church about eight months after that in my, my home church in Yukaiba, or rather my, my parents' home church where my dad was serving on staff as a, uh, as a uh, worship minister. I began serving on staff. I, I took a, a worship ministry position. My dad was retiring out of that. My mother-in-law, who was actually here today, was singing on the worship team. Um, and I was between the jobs. I started working for her husband, Gary, as an electrician while I was working bivocationally in our church. I started spending uh, a little bit more time with this girl that I went to high school with uh, that I knew and I wasn't interested in her and she wasn't interested in me, but she had this little boy that desperately needed some love and attention uh, because I didn't like the way that some of the people in our church were talking about him. And I had come to the understanding that we are all adopted in Christ. And so as Christian, particularly as Christian men, we should work to adopt one another, whether that's legally or just in a spiritual sense. And so I started spending time with this little boy, this little four-year-old boy who was a handful, uh, but really just needed somebody to love him and, and, and stop treating him as if he was worthless. And, and I fell in love with my son, Aiden. He wasn't my son at the time. Uh, fell in love with my son, Aiden. And as a result of spending so much time with Aiden, I started spending more time with his mother. Uh, and then, boy, I fell in love with her too. <laughs> and I was blessed because she fell in love with me. <laughs> we got married. Still serving in the church, working by vocation. 
several years after that. Uh, and in that process, uh, some of you have heard, I, I broke my neck, I broke my back. There was all kinds of uh, hard things that we dealt with in that. Our son was born, Caleb uh, was born, our second son. Uh, and then um, a couple of, about three years after that, we were called to full-time service here in Jupertino. We were offered uh, four different jobs. I interviewed in about eight different places all over the United States. We were offered four different jobs we wanted out of California. Cupertino is one of the places that we uh, had uh, looked at and uh, that offered the job. And, and for some reason, even though we wanted out of California, we said, okay, let's go to Cupertino. And uh, the rest is kind of history. <laughs> Been here ever since. I served as the youth and music pastor uh, at First Baptist Church of Cupertino for about uh, nine months uh, until the senior pastor at the time told me that he was leaving. And I then started serving as the interim pastor. It wasn't terribly long after that uh, that I met Pastor Cliff, and he met us right in the beginning of the reformation and revitalization of our congregation and of our body uh, uh, there. And uh, you guys basically know the rest of the story after that. I became the senior pastor, and uh, now I am joyfully an associate pastor of this new church. Maybe you've heard of it, uh, Creekside Bible Church. <laughs> so I think I've left just enough time for very few questions, which is excellent for me. Uh, but are, does anybody have any questions? I, I, I'm an open book. Uh, I really don't like talking about myself tons, but in this context, for you people whom I love, I would absolutely love to answer any question that you can throw at me that I actually have an answer for. And if I don't have an answer for it, I'll say hi. No. <laughs> Anybody? Wonderful. I like that. With that, friends, uh, can we uh, pray and then enjoy some fellowship together? Awesome and amazing God, I thank you this day and every day, Lord, that while I was formerly dead in my sins and trespasses, but while I was joyfully walking the course of this world as a son of disobedience, Lord, while I was deserving of nothing but wrath, God, you gave grace and mercy. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me for my arrogance and my vengeful, foolish heart. God, to you be the glory. To you be all glory. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever, Lord, it is you who saves by your grace, by your provision, through the blood of your Son. And God, I thank you so much for that salvation. And I pray, God, that salvation for every person in attendance here today. I pray that salvation for every person that any member of this congregation comes into contact with. Lord, we pray that you would stir the affections for Christ Jesus in the hearts of all who surround us, God. Would there be a great revival in this community and in this state and in this nation? Lord, in this world, would there be a revival for the name and the glory of Jesus Christ alone? But even though all glory belongs to you, Lord, I thank you that I have been given the opportunity to share what you've done in my life by your grace, through your mercy. And God, I pray that it would serve well your people. God, I reaffirm in this moment my commitment to you. Whatever you say, wherever you tell me to go, 
Whatever your Bible says is true, Lord, I commit myself to these things in your service, and I pray that that would be the disposition of every believer at Creekside Bible Church. In Jesus' name, we pray these things together. Amen. Amen.